It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today. To, has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to General Misconduct. This is episode one of our series on Civil War General Braxton Bragg. I know it's been a while since I've uploaded a new episode. Uh, It's been about almost two months now since I uploaded the uh, Conrad Von Hotzendorf episodes. And if you haven't already listened to those, go ahead and give those a listen. Uh, Obviously, you don't need to have any context from those episodes to enjoy today's episode. Um, but I mean, if you haven't already, go ahead and give those couple of episodes a listen. And if you want the bonus episode for that one, it's also available on the Patreon. If you want to become a member, I have membership starting out at only $1 a month and I'll give you access to any content that I've already posted on there and then future content. It also helps the show to keep going. Uh, just gives me another incentive to, put a little bit more time and effort into these episodes. Uh, again, I know it's been a while since I've uploaded one, and I can't guarantee that an upload schedule is going to get any better in the next couple months, uh, just because the seasons are changing up here, and that means I'm going to be spending a lot more time at work. Um, but I could drone on and on about my own personal problems. Let's get into today's episode. As I said, uh, today's episode is about uh, Confederate General Braxton Bragg. Um, Pretty uh, infamous guy. uh, If you're even just uh, kind of a casual student or casual fan of Civil War history, then you've definitely heard of Braxton Bragg. I don't know if he's in the kind of general knowledge, um, know what they're teaching in school these days. I imagine he probably gets brought up maybe once or twice. Um, you've definitely heard the name Bragg before. He's actually the guy that Fort Bragg, North Carolina is named after. It's also the reason why that military post is getting its name changed to Fort Liberty, uh, which, you know, there's a lot of different feelings about that going on in the military community, specifically with units posted there. Um, 82nd and special forces command are both at, uh, Fort Bragg. It's the home of the airborne, um, so there are a lot of, you know, different takes being made about the fort changing their name from Bragg to Liberty. Some saying the name could have been better. Some don't want a name change at all, whatever. I've always thought that it's ironic that the fort where our country's most elite units are stationed at is named after Braxton Bragg. Uh, and you're going to learn why in these next couple episodes of why that's ironic, because although that... Post is home to the most elite units in the U.S. Army. Uh, Braxton Bragg was kind of, (laughs) 
he's often considered one of the worst generals the confederacy had um and to a degree i mean he does cause a lot of problems for the confederacy specifically towards the end of the war he made a lot of blunders during his campaigns um but we're going to discuss that in more depth. It's not so much that he was the worst general the South had. The South had a lot of incompetent commanders who had no prior military experience. Um, and to say Braxton Bragg was the worst general of the South is a bit of a stretch. He was definitely the most hated man in the following years, following the, uh, the fall of the Confederacy and the end of the Civil War. Um, he's often remembered as being the most hated man in the Confederacy because he is kind of the scapegoat, the guy who is to blame for the fall of Tennessee and the eventual siege and destruction at Atlanta, and ultimately for Sherman's march to the sea that occurred in late 1864. So that's kind of the the big reason of why he's remembered as being this uh, infamous figure uh, not only uh, for the North, but for the South as well. So the one thing those two sides agree on is that Braxton Bragg was a, uh, you know, kind of a bastard. And, you know, I'm going to talk about it in this episode and the next episode and try to cover his life in more detail, specifically looking at his generalship and his military career. This episode's going to focus mainly on his early life and his uh, career in the U.S. Army prior to the Civil War. So his generalship and the things that he's infamous for, that's going to be mostly talked about in the next episode. Um, but today I just want to kind of give the groundwork, get to, uh, get to know this guy, figure out why he ends up performing the way that he performs uh, during the Civil War. Um, so in order to understand that, we're going to have to look at his, uh, his life prior to the Civil War, find out what kind of a man this was. Try to give him more of a fair shake. Um, the book that I read to kind of prepare for this episode and am still reading, um, attempted to do the same thing. It's a book by Earl J. Hess. It's called Braxton Bragg, The Most Hated Man of the Confederacy, if you're interested in finding out uh, where I got most of my uh, material for this episode. You can read that book uh Especially with this episode, I'm leaning almost entirely on his work, um, just because there aren't a lot of books devoted to the study of Braxton Bragg in particular. There are some, but uh, a lot of them, you know, is on par with what you usually get from uh, Civil War like biographies, uh, really just military history biographies in the U.S. in general. A lot of the time, they're not really good as far as like academically going. Uh, they fall into one of two categories, uh, at least for like Civil War biographies. I put them into one of two categories, which is either uh, uh, lost cause romanticism or like this idea of putting a either like if they're from the South, they become a punching bag. So it's kind of the flip side of lost cause romanticism. Or if they're a Northern general, it just portrays them as like this, you know, giant among men. Uh, which is just something you find in a lot of, again, military history biographies about any general in U.S. history, uh, Confederate or Union, uh, Civil War or not. It's always comes into one of those uh, two. It's either they over-glorify the man or they trash the man. And that's the case with Braxton Bragg as well. A lot of the materials out there 
for him are either one or the other. It's either Lost Cause, Southern Romanticism, or it's the uh, or it's the opposite. So it's pretty difficult sometimes, depending on who I'm studying, to find a kind of non-biased source. It's definitely hard whenever you're studying the Civil War. The Civil War can be a touchy topic. And there's going to be a lot of Civil War episodes. I'm going to be covering a lot of different Civil War generals, so I'm not going to... I'm going to try to dance around uh, having any kind of you know bias when it comes to it. I'm just going to try to give the history of these guys, and I'm going to try to give Braxton Bragg a fair shake, too. Obviously, this is general misconduct, so I'm going to be highlighting the, you know, I say the good, the bad, and the ugly, but it's mostly the bad and the ugly on this uh, on this podcast that I highlight. But I'm going to try to give him a fair shake. Again, the book that I read by Earl J. Hess tries to give the man a better shake, or a fair shake, rather. He does cover, uh, obviously, the negatives. That's what I liked about this book is that it wasn't just like, oh, I'm going to try to defend the image of Braxa Bragg and it falls into that lost cause, um, those tropes. Hess doesn't really do that from what I've read so far in the book. He gives, uh, again, he gives a fair shake for Braxton Bragg, uh, kind of better explains why he performed the way that he did in the Civil War. So without further ado, let's jump right into the history of the man himself. So Braxton Bragg was born on March 22nd, 1817 in Warrington, North Carolina, to a man named Thomas Bragg and his wife, Margaret. He was one of 12 siblings. Uh, Thomas was a construction contractor and a slave owner, uh, and again, was able to support a very large family. Uh, Braxton had several brothers among that group of 12, including his brother John, who served as a congressman and a judge in the state of Alabama, Uh, Thomas Jr., who served as governor of North Carolina and eventually would serve as the attorney general for the Confederate States, His brother Alexander was an architect, his brother Dunbar was a merchant, and he had another brother, William, who died as a soldier during the Civil War. Uh, Hess doesn't really discuss his sisters at all, I couldn't really find any information on them, but he had six other sisters. Um, His mother, Margaret, was arrested for the murder of a freedman, presumably during the pregnancy of uh, when she was pregnant with Braxton. Uh, she was jailed while she was pregnant and awaited trial and was eventually found not guilty by a jury. Uh, for more context, the reason given for shooting this guy was that uh, he spoke impertinently to her. So, I mean, it's antebellum South. If a black man does literally anything to a white woman, he could have done absolutely nothing. I mean, the reason they give is, again, spoke impertinently to her, uh, which, again, could be, like, absolutely nothing. Uh, The fact that she was found not guilty shouldn't be a surprise to anybody if you know anything about the time period. Um, Again, a black man could look at a white woman in the wrong way, and, you know, any action that she takes against him after that point is going to be pretty much uh, overlooked. So... Again, uh, she was likely acquitted of this due to the fact that, uh, again, it was the antebellum South, and no jury was going to jail a married, pregnant white woman for shooting a black man, whether he was a freedman or a slave. 
Uh, historians have speculated that Braxton's later knowledge of this event as a child had a great effect on him. Not necessarily that his mother had shot a black man, but that she had served time in jail, and it caused him to constantly need to prove his standing in society. So, again, uh, he doesn't know about this for a while growing up, but he does eventually learn about his mother being put in jail for a time uh, for this crime. Um, and the way that it affects Braxton isn't like, oh my goodness, my mother shot somebody. It was like, oh my goodness, my mother was in jail for any reason whatsoever. And this uh, had a profound effect on uh, his mind and kind of how he would act later on in his life. He constantly needed to prove that he was uh, something more just because his mother had spent you know, a short time in jail uh, but eventually was found not guilty of a crime that she absolutely committed. Um, so yeah, it's a weird reason as to why he's going to act the way he acts for the rest of his life, but uh, that is the reason given. Uh, moving on. So Braxton was always destined to be a military officer, and he was able to attend West Point uh, in the early 1830s, and he graduated in 1837. He was number five in a class of 50, so he ended up in the top 10% of his class. Uh, that class included future colleagues John C. Pemberton and Jubal Early, both of whom he would serve alongside in the American Civil War on the side of the Confederacy. And Joe Hooker, who was the future, one of the several commanders of the General of the Army of the Potomac. Uh, for those of you who don't know, that was like the main Union army that <clears throat> was fighting in Virginia against the Lee for most of the war. That was uh, the one that McClellan led, uh, George Meade later led, and then, again, Joe Hooker led at one point, Ambrose Burnside led it at another time. It was kind of the main force that was, uh, like, if you study Civil War history at all, especially the war in the East or the war in Virginia where 60% of the battles in the Civil War were fought, what you'll, the unit that you'll constantly hear about is the Army of the Potomac. And, again, uh, Joe Hooker would go on to command that force for a short time, and he was in the same class as Braxton Bragg. Um, so Bragg graduates in, again, 1837, number 5 of 50. So, clearly, he is a smart guy. The fact that he was able to get into West Point, especially at that time in history, shows that um, he was qualified. It wasn't enough uh, back then that uh, nepotism would help you get into uh, West Point. Obviously, there are going to be cases of that, but West Point is extremely selective at the time. Again, it's a class of 50 that he graduates with. You have to understand the size of the U.S. Army in the 1830s was minuscule. It was mostly a frontier force, very few men in it, you know, just a few thousand here or there up into the Civil War. The numbers are going to be extremely low. So if you wanted to, you know, serve in the Army at all, it was hard to get into, especially as an officer, and then it's going to be extremely difficult to get into West Point. So... The fact that Bragg was able to get in and graduate near the top of his class uh, speaks pretty highly to the mind of Braxton Bragg, at least in these early years. Um, so again, he graduates and he's immediately signed to the 3rd Artillery. Um, I don't know if that's a battery or a regiment or a battalion. Um, just said 3rd Artillery in the book. I'm, I'm guessing it was a battery based on the context of the U.S. Army at this period in time. So he goes and serves in the Second Seminole War down in Florida, which had just broken out. Uh, doesn't see any kind of combat while he's down there. He ends up catching malaria, though. 
1838 and is put on sick leave due to that. Uh, despite the fact that, again, his service in the Second Seminole War was, you know, he basically just got malaria and left. <laughs> uh, he still saw advancement through the ranks that year as he was promoted to first lieutenant, uh, serving as the regimental, uh, uh, <clears throat> sorry, uh, regimental agent. Uh, and so he starts serving on recruiting duty in Philadelphia for a short time, and then he gets reassigned to the old regiment, the uh, his third artillery, and he becomes the company commander of that battery and promoted to the rank of captain. Now, during the 1840s, oh, actually, rewind. Uh, it's actually time for our first commercial break. So... When we get back, I'll start talking about uh, his career after he took over that company command position, and we will be right back after a word from our sponsors. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. And we're back. Uh, when we left off, Braxton Bragg had just been promoted to the rank of captain and took over the battery leadership of his old artillery battery that he had served with in the Second Seminole War. Uh, and now we move on to the 1840s. So during the 1840s, uh, Bragg ends up moving around extensively and served in a bunch of different posts, including this company command that he just took up. Uh, however, it was during this time that several of his colleagues began to notice uh, several different things about Braxton that stood out. First, he was a highly intelligent and analytical officer, uh, but he often found issues with how parts of the army were being ran. So, again, as I noted, he was an extremely smart individual. That's why he was able to get into uh, West Point at that period of time. Um but what is often a uh, issue for people who are too smart for their own good, they end up causing problems for themselves. And this was especially true for Braxton Bragg um, because, as I said, he found issues with how the army was being ran at this point in time. And he would frequently send letters of complaint to Congress. Now, if you have served in the military before, you know that if you have issues with your unit, what you're supposed to do, or if you have issues with the army as a whole, is you use your chain of command. You use those different channels in order to voice your concerns. Braxton, either he, he might now, to, in his defense, he might have gone through these channels before. He could have told like his battalion commander or whoever who was above him uh, about 
the issues he had with the way the army was being ran. Um, I highly doubt it based on the stuff he was writing about and what I've read. Uh, he wasn't having a particular like personal issue with the army. He just looked at how it was being ran as a whole and thought he could do it better. And so he decided that, oh, you know, Congress is the is the oversight for the military. I'll write to congressmen in my state and complain about the way the army's being ran. So completely bypassing his chain of command, kind of bad-mouthing them to members of Congress. Now, Braxton's family, as I've discussed earlier in the episode, was fairly prominent due to the fact that, you know, several of his brothers end up serving as politicians for the state of North Carolina and the state of Alabama. So people know the Bragg family in Washington, D.C. So when he's writing these letters to Congress, they aren't, you know, being ignored. And it's not for a good reason, not for Bragg. Um, And I'll discuss that here in a minute. But uh, he ends up writing nine different articles in the 1840s that he published in the Southern Literary Messenger, which is a kind of a, uh, it was a newspaper of the time. And he sends these, I guess you could call it an op-ed article or an opinion piece. He would write these pieces and the newspaper would publish them under a pseudonym for him. Uh, And basically these articles laid out his issues that he had with uh, how the army was ran. Uh, It appears that he might have called out specific uh, army leaders in these articles. And eventually due to the language that he used in these articles or you know, they might have been leaked to Washington, who was writing these articles. Uh, so eventually they find out that it's Braxton Bragg who's doing this, who, again, at the time was only a captain. So he's a junior officer, and he is essentially bad-mouthing his higher echelons of leadership to the in, in, in this newspaper to the entire country. Um, so as soon as they find out... Uh, uh, things uh, don't go well for Bragg, but I'll get back to that in a second. So the other thing that his uh, colleagues began to notice, they noted that Bragg was an extremely ambitious officer in such a way that it put off many of his contemporaries and it bordered on like uh, narcissism. So he, uh, like I had noted earlier, he became obsessed with self-image due to the fact that his mother had served time in jail uh, when she was pregnant with him. And now we're starting to see that impact uh, on young Braxton. We're starting to see it uh, come out uh, as he gets older. And it manifests itself in this kind of, uh, this narcissistic uh, type of, type of behavior, this kind of personality that he is beginning to grow. Um, again, he's they recognize that he's ambitious, and it's not necessarily a bad thing to be ambitious, but it begins to uh, he begins to think highly of himself or believe that he deserves a higher station than the one that he's currently in. It's also the reason, excuse me, in part, that he ends up writing those letters in the Southern Literary Messenger and sending off messages to Congress. And that all kind of stems from this personality that he has developed. Uh, lastly, and this is going to be probably the, well, I, may, I shouldn't say the biggest thing, uh, but this is going to have one of the biggest impacts, if not the biggest, on where Braxton's career is going to go. 
Uh, he was a he. His colleagues noted that he was fiercely patriotic for his home state of North Carolina, as well as the South as a whole. Which, obviously, this guy's eventually going to serve in the Confederate Army, so it would make sense that he would have sympathies for the Southern cause prior to the Civil War, and. It was also noted that he was himself a Southerner. Uh, at the time, he had a friend by the name of William Tecumseh Sherman, who you might have heard of before. Um, and at the time, he noted uh, the ferocity that Bragg had and made note of at least one event where Bragg challenged a man to a duel for insulting his home state of North Carolina. Uh, this last note of personality was starkly defining for Bragg as his love for his home in the South also extended to a fervent hatred of the North. Um, his fellow officer, Erasmus D. Keyes, noted that he held a feeling of intolerant sectionalism, which caused constant tension between himself and Bragg. Uh, so Bragg had this, what Keyes described as, <clears throat> a feeling of intolerant sectionalism. Basically, believing that the North and South should be separate, that the North was bad, the South was good. And again, he had a fervent patriotism for his home state of North Carolina. Uh, I believe the insult that the man he challenged to a duel, I believe the insult was like, had to do with something about like North Carolina being the lesser of the two Carolinas or something of that nature. Um, and he's in a bar when he says this and Bragg gets pissed off and he's there with a couple of other officers again Sherman and I believe Keyes was also uh, present and he like immediately like throws down and he's like I'll fucking like let's have a duel here I will I will stand for the honor of my home state of North Carolina something along those lines a very stereotypical uh, period reaction to one's home state being slandered by uh, by another gentleman so <clears throat> Again, this gives you a better idea of who Braxton Bragg was. He was very, very patriotic for his home state of North Carolina and for the South as a whole. So, again, that's gonna, and that's going to play a huge part in where his career in life goes because, really, this reason more than anything else is why he's going to end up fighting for the Confederate States and lead to all the other things that we know Braxton Bragg for. Anyway, uh... Thus, the defining characteristics of young Braxton Bragg were his self-obsession with perfection, his disdains for the upper echelons of the authority in the U.S. Army, and his fierce and neurotic obsession with Southern nationalism and devotion to North Carolina. So, he's a narcissist, uh, he doesn't respect authority, and he's got a strong feeling of uh, sectionalism. So, these are, you know not great character qualities to have uh, and they can definitely show us where he's going to go based on those character qualities uh, and like I said earlier those letters that he wrote to Congress and the uh, opinion pieces that he wrote in the newspaper come around to bite him in the ass and they do in the mid 1840s uh, in the aforementioned articles that he wrote, uh, he criticized high command, including General Winfield Scott, who is... I want to do an episode on him, too, because he's got one of the most impactful careers on the early U.S. Army. He serves as uh, one of the top generals for many, many years. He had service in the Mexican-American War leading up to the Civil War, and then he was the guy who kind of 
was the mastermind behind the Anaconda plan during the Civil War. And he was a pretty old guy by that point. Um, but anyway, Bragg criticizes him in these opinion pieces. Uh, and it's described the tone that he used in these opinion pieces was unprofessional and unkind, specifically towards General Winfield Scott. Um, so following the publishment of these articles, he went on leave to go to Washington, D.C. to lobby for his proposed forms after his command specifically told him, hey, yes, you can take leave, but you better not go up there and start causing more trouble in D.C. Bragg doesn't care. He believes that he is in the right, what uh, he knows to be true. Uh, he believes that it's important that he go to D.C. and lobby for these changes to be made in the army which again pretty uh pretty unbecoming of a junior officer to be doing something like that and so he was charged and eventually found guilty by a court martial for disrespecting a superior officer in this case it would be uh the officer who told him not to go to dc during leave this isn't uh this isn't a direct acknowledgement of Bragg's uh, articles that he wrote about Winfield Scott and the other upper, upper echelons. This court-martial doesn't have, technically doesn't have anything to do with that, but uh, they, it's it's kind of understood that the, that's the reason why he was court-martialed. It was like, it wasn't that he just went to D.C. and did this lobbying thing. It was like, oh, he was kind of kicking a hornet's nest to begin with. He did this thing earlier. We're going to keep that in the back of our minds when this goes to trial. That's why he's eventually found guilty. Um, but because, again, it wasn't about that. It was uh, disrespecting a superior officer. It was violating that direct order not to go to D.C. So he, he gets off with a fairly light punishment and really had basically no impact. Uh, I can't even I can't even remember what the punishment was, but it was fairly light. He continues to serve in the Army at his rank, really the disciplinary action against him ends up having uh, little to any kind of impact on his behavior. He goes about the same way that he was prior to. Really, the only thing that it does, uh, it enraged him more and caused him to have even less respect <clears throat> for the upper echelons of the army. So, yeah, that's and that's kind of the end of that. He continues to lobby in a kind of a softer way. Uh, I'll talk about that more here in a minute. Uh, he doesn't give up trying to reform the army, but for the time being, he kind of understands now, like, hey, the spotlight's kind of on me. As much as I want it to be, uh, I understand the negative repercussions. He wasn't stupid. He understood that he had a lot of negative attention on him now because um, at this time, he's still a captain, a junior officer, and he had gained notoriety all the way up the chain of command, all the way up to the uh, Secretary of War at the time. Um, so it's not good when you're, you know, a lowly company commander and all of a sudden the civilian uh, who is in charge of all the U.S. Army all of a sudden knows who you are and is not a fan of yours. Uh, but again, he was allowed to continue his dis service uh, despite all this. Uh, moving on. Um, where are we at? I think it's time for another commercial break. All right, so after this, uh, we're going to get back into his military career following his little, uh, his court-martial and his 
little escapade that he had in D.C. Uh, we're going to be moving on to his service in the Mexican-American War and leading up to what he was doing prior to the Civil War. And we'll be right back after these messages. And we're back. Uh, where we last left off, uh, Braxton Bragg had just been court-martialed and found guilty for disrespecting a superior officer. Uh, moving forward, again, like I said, he's got that kind of spotlight on him now. He knows the Army is watching his every move, so he decides to tighten up his behavior a little bit, uh, but his overall uh, feelings and personality and the resentment that he holds toward uh, high command, he still is going to have those feelings of resentment. Uh, but in 1846, the Mexican-American War breaks out, and Captain Bragg is sent to Mexico in command of a light artillery battery, which at this point in U.S. history, there is only two light artillery batteries in the entire U.S. Army. Again, I noted earlier how the U.S. Army up until the Civil War was extremely small, especially in peacetime. So when the Mexican-American War breaks out, we don't actually have a lot of men serving in the proper U.S. Army at the time, to the point where there's only two light artillery batteries in the entire army. And Bragg just so happens to be commander of one of them. Uh, the army was forced to swell its numbers at the time. Like I said, small army. Now you're at war. You've got to pull in volunteers. Uh, don't believe there was a draft at this point in time. Um, but they end up swelling the ranks with a lot of volunteers, which allow veteran soldiers and officers like Bragg to stand out. Uh, he was one of the many future Civil War generals to cut his teeth in the Mexican-American War. A lot of them, uh, Robert E. Lee, Ulysses S. Grant, all these guys, uh, their first major conflict was the Mexican-American War. And really the main guys who go on to serve in the really high-level general uh, officer positions in both the Confederate and Union armies, pretty much all of them ended up uh, serving in the Mexican-American War. Uh, a lot of them were still junior officers at the time. You know, this is still, you know, another 14 years before the Civil War breaks out. <clears throat> um, where was I? It's one of the many future generals. Uh, yes, and so he's also going to meet a lot of his uh, future Confederate colleagues during this war. Uh, he met an aspiring uh, regimental commander of a group of Mississippi volunteers by the name of Jefferson Davis, the future president of the CSA. Uh, Bragg made an outstanding impression to Jefferson Davis uh, during the war because he expertly commanded his battery in holding a defensive position uh, at Buena Vista against waves of Mexican infantry. So basically, Bragg only has his artillery battery, which uh, is the size of an infantry company, so about 100 guys or whatever, and they've got their light cannons, and they don't have any infantry support at their position, and all of a sudden they're being attacked by like waves of Mexican infantry, which is not great if you're an artillery uh, battery, if you've got infantry coming down directly on you. Uh, but Bragg and his men are able to hold on to their position and drive back the Mexican advance. And this leaves an impression on Jefferson Davis that Braxton Bragg is a competent and well-skilled military commander, something that Davis is going to remember in the future. Um, spoiler alert, uh, Braxton Bragg, after he's removed from field command during the Civil War, he's actually going to become 
a advisor for Jefferson Davis on the war effort uh, for the last year of the war, uh, which, I, yeah, I don't, <laughs> I don't understand either. We'll talk about that more in the next episode. Um, but anyway, like I said, Bragg leaves a good impression on Davis, and likewise, uh, Davis left a good impression on Bragg. Bragg complimented how he, how Davis and his regiment. Uh, were one of the few volunteer groups, uh, volunteer regiments that actually were reliable, uh, not only amongst the other volunteers, but against the whole U.S. Army. Um, that may or may not have been true. It might just be Bragg understanding that Jefferson Davis is going to have like a good career in the future and he's schmoozing here. Um, but, you know, I, I can't really make that assumption. So... But it also kind of plays into the fact that obviously Bragg's going to compliment a non-regular U.S. Army unit's performance because he's got a grudge against the regular U.S. Army. Um, moving on. Uh, oh, yeah. So how did he actually perform during the war? Um, he performed pretty well. Again, he had, like I noted that... Uh, he was able to expertly defend his battery's position at Buena Vista, but throughout the whole war, he uh, ends up uh, performing very well, him and his battery. Uh, again, this is a... Uh, he he has a spotlight on him now for better reasons uh, than before. Being the only of two battery commanders of light artillery in the whole U.S. Army means you've got more eyes on you. And if you're performing well, it uh, it really helps your reputation. So he gets noticed by a lot of other officers, his future colleagues, his future superiors, and his well, future enemies as well. And again, he's extremely successful throughout the whole war. Um, but doesn't mean he didn't have a few close calls with death, uh, just the nature of war. However, in this case, uh, it was an attempt at fratricide. He dodged two fra uh, fratricide attempts throughout the war uh, in 1847. He came down with malaria twice, uh, but he had already suffered from it uh, in Florida, so he had built up an immunity. But during that time, uh, there was a man by the name of Samuel Church who served in Bragg's uh, battery who saw this opportunity uh, to as a way of getting rid of Bragg, which I guess he had an issue with. Uh, so while Bragg was resting in his tent, Church decided to make a makeshift bomb or an IED uh, out of an old artillery shell and tried to blow up his tent. It failed on the first attempt and he wasn't caught. And then he decided he would try again. Uh, failed on both attempts. Uh, didn't even manage to injure Bragg. I don't think the explosive went off in either attempt. But again, uh, by this time, they find out what... Um, uh, What's his name? Uh, Church. What he's up to. He gets found out, so he has to desert. And Braxton Bragg narrowly escapes death twice. Um, well, following the Mexican-American War, Bragg continued to serve in several different posts along the western frontier. Uh, that was basically all you could do at that time in the U.S. Army during peacetime. Throughout the 19th century, you're going to get posted, you know, just all along the frontier. Texas, California... Uh, New Mexico, places like that, 
all along the you know the western u.s frontier fighting native americans um that kind of thing kind of sitting around in a fort in the middle of nowhere and that's what bragg's doing at this point in time following the mexican-american war and due to the fact that he was posted up in the frontier he had to spend a lot of his time away from his home and wife uh, as he had before the war, he continued to voice the same criticisms of the army to Congress, but now his brother was actually serving as a representative for the state of Alabama, and now he had an official he had an official channel to which he could voice his criticisms. Um, and it's noted that Bragg voiced these criticisms now in a far more respectful manner than he had a decade prior. Uh, and he began to change his behavior slightly. And this does help his case in a in a way. Uh, it just so happened to be that if uh, you voice your displeasure with the U.S. Army in a disrespectful manner and circumvent your chain of command while you're doing that, uh, it's not received very well. Uh, but if you use official channels uh, and do it in a respectful tone, uh, it's actually received far better. <laughs> so... Uh, again, uh, Bragg continues to voice his criticisms, but now he's doing it in a much more mature way. It doesn't really result in the way that he wants it to go. Again, the big sweeping reforms that he wants to see in the army, which I couldn't get specifications on. Um, again, they don't take place. So it's just kind of that you know that meme from the simpsons where that's uh was it homer's homer's dad it's like shaking his fist at the sky it's like old man yells at the sky that's basically what braxton bragg was doing in the 1840s and 50s <laughs> um it should be noted uh at this time that he had uh subordinates uh for whom he wrote highly of to army command he had two uh subordinates two guys serving under him um that he thought were doing really well, and he decided that he was going to write letters of recommendation for these young officers. And these two officers' names were Daniel Harvey Hill, who you might know, and George H. Thomas, who, if you follow the, the Instagram page at all, you should definitely know because I wrote a post about him. Um, these two guys, again, were officers serving under Bragg following the Mexican-American War. And he kind of took note of these two guys' uh, performance and decided that they should move up the, the ladder of rank. And so he wrote them letters of recommendation. Uh, the irony and why I wanted to note this is that David Harvey Hill is eventually going to serve in the Confederate Army alongside and under Braxton Bragg. Um, and at the Battle of Chickamauga, uh, they're going to end up coming to blows due to a some kind of argument of how either one performed. I think there was a finger-pointing thing. Oh, excuse me, going back and forth between the two for a while based on how that battle went. That is, a I should note, was a victory for the South, but I guess they the, these two had some kind of disagreement over it. Um, and the other part of why this whole thing is ironic is that George H. Thomas, also known for the Battle of Chickamauga, ends up serving on the Union side of the war. Uh, and he's actually the reason why the Union Army is going to be saved at the Battle of Chickamauga. Um, it's actually where he, he earns the title Rock of Chickamauga because he was able to hold his, his unit's position and kind of helped the... Uh, 
the Union uh, withdrawal at the Battle of Chickamauga. Also should note uh, the reason why I like George H. Thomas and why I want to do an episode about him is that he was a Southerner. He was a Virginian, in fact, and decided uh, still to, uh, to fight for the Union Army rather than give in to this idea of patriotism for his home state of Virginia. He's also he's an interesting guy uh, when studying the Civil War because he's kind of the direct opposite of a lot of uh, Southern generals, and he's a good counter-argument. If you're trying to make the argument of, of um, the reason of why these Southern generals should be... Um, if you're trying to make the argument that they were just being patriotic towards their state or whatever, or try to use that defense... George H. Thomas is usually the guy that you would use to counter that argument because he clearly was like, he put the union above the state, uh, his state loyalties. And so people will often use that as a counter argument. Uh, Thomas was also an extremely uh, humble individual. There's like no personal writings left by him uh, just because he didn't really want to be remembered for a lot of different reasons. He just was a humble guy. Uh, he's definitely a direct opposite to how Braxton Bragg is, due to a lot of things. Mostly the Southern patriotism and the narcissism thing. Um, Thomas is a good opposite. And Thomas also performed very well during the Civil War. Uh, but this isn't the George H. Thomas episode. This is the Braxton Bragg episode. And we're almost done here. Um, so, yeah, again... Thomas, ah, okay, so, the, so as I've noted before, Braxton Bragg had this whole long army career before the U.S. Civil War, uh, a lot of generals who fought for the South also did, Braxton Bragg, though, uh, is actually going to leave the army far before the Civil War ever breaks out, a lot of the guys who serve as Confederate generals were actually serving in the Union Army prior to the breakout of the war, and then switched sides, or as soon as their estates seceded, decided to join the Confederacy, Braxton actually got out several years prior, ironically, due to his friend and future Confederate president, Jefferson Davis. Um, he's the guy who ends up ending Braxton Bragg's army career. Uh, well, at least like kind of indirectly. Um, he doesn't get him fired, but he gets Bragg to quit. But that wasn't his intention. Um so as stated before, Bragg was a light artillery commander, and he led only one of such unit, one of two such units uh, in the army during the time of the Mexican-American War. Now, during the Franklin Pierce administration, um, that's going to be 1853 to 1857, I want to say, yes, um, Davis is actually appointed to be the position of uh, Secretary of War, uh, which is highly ironic that the... Uh, the guy who was in charge of the entire U.S. Army uh, ends up betraying the U.S. and becoming the president of the Confederacy. Uh, most people don't know that, that Jefferson Davis was the Secretary of War uh, for the United States in the 1850s. Um, but again, a lot of Southern politicians uh, served uh, as U.S. politicians prior to the war. Uh, also, uh, U.S. President John Tyler ends up becoming a senator for the Confederate uh, Congress which is often uh, used as part of an argument to say that John Tyler was the worst president in U.S. history, which uh, I don't know if I agree with that statement. But anyway, again, this is this is supposed to be about Braxton Bragg, so let's get back to him. Anyway, uh, 
again, so Davis is the Secretary of War during the Franklin Pierce administration, and during this time, he actually implements a policy of reform in the U.S. Army. Uh, however, again, ironically, this is a type of reform that's going to end up hurting Braxton Bragg, um, who had been an advocate for you know reforms in the U.S. Army for years. It had gotten him in trouble in the 1840s. And now all of a sudden there is a push for reform, but this time uh, it's something that Bragg doesn't necessarily support, uh, mostly because it's going to put him out of a job. See, at the time, the U.S. wanted to move towards uh, modern rifled artillery, which means if you're moving towards modern rifled artillery, you have to get rid of your small smoothboard cannons that were being employed by Bragg's battery. So all of a sudden, the U.S. Army is moving to adopt new equipment that is going to make Bragg's job uh, outdated and irrelevant. Uh, so his battery ends up getting disbanded in the late eight, or mid-1850s. As a result, uh, Bragg has to find a new position in the Army, and so they put him into a cavalry officer role, and he didn't like this one bit. He was an, art- an artillery commander. He had done artillery his entire army career outside of like his uh, recruiting position that he had for a short time pretty much only served in artillery positions he was an artillery officer um but now with the light artillery gone he has to be put into a cavalry position he doesn't like the change he doesn't want to be a cavalry officer so he decides that after 18 and a half years in the u.s army he decides to resign his commission in january of 1856 uh, little under or little over five years prior to the beginning of the Civil War, uh, he decides to purchase a plantation in the state of Louisiana because his wife had this uh, this aristocratic kind of lifestyle that she was used to at this point. Uh, something that his officers' pay could support at the time, um, and so he decides he wants to keep his wife's uh, standard of living up, and so he decides to take what money he's earned. <clears throat> from his army career uh the money that he inherited from his uh farm uh excuse me his father's contracting business and he ends up buying a plantation um a sugar plantation to be exact uh during this period he was also involved in local politics which was pretty common for plantation owners to do uh i mean if you owned a plantation that means you were a big property owner in the area you had a decently sized labor force a pretty decently sized slave labor force uh and it meant you had some kind of standing in the community um so it would behoove you to get involved in local politics sometimes you're kind of forced into those positions and that was the case with bragg he ends up serving in some small local political positions you know uh kind of like a a town comptroller or something like that those kinds of positions uh he also assisted in the establishment of lsu louisiana state university at baton rouge uh which at the time was had a different name and if i had to write it down i can't remember but it was oh it, it was um i think it was like louisiana state seminary and military academy it was it was called something like that but it was meant to be again a cemetery and a military academy a seminary and a military academy I don't know why that tongue twisted me. But anyway, um, so they brought on Braxton Bragg when LSU was being founded because they wanted him 
to head up the foundation of the military academy side of the house. Um, so that's why he was brought in. And he spent a lot of time doing that. He would give lectures at the seminary as well. Uh, he became friends with uh, the guy who was in charge of that side of the house. Eventually, they had some kind of falling out. Uh, couldn't remember what it was over. Not really significant. Um, so he's he's spending a lot of his time there, but he's spending most of his time uh, devoted to the management of his sugar plantation. Now, this is the last thing I'll note before I end today's episode. Sugar plantations in the South were among some of the most grueling of any of the uh, plantations. You often hear about cotton plantations or, you know, other types. Uh, what, what else? Tobacco plantations. You often hear about those when you're studying uh, the antebellum South and the issue of slavery. You often hear about, you know, again, cotton and tobacco plantations. But sugar plantations were the hardest to work on. Uh, and Bragg's was no different. Uh, his slaves often worked 18 hour plus days, um, working far before the sun came up and far after, far long after the sun went down. And he personally ran it with a, uh, what was called a, like a military like type of discipline. He ran a very tight ship. He brought over his same military leadership style that he had in the army. And he brought that to his plantation, of course, Uh, And he was much harsher on his slaves than he was on his fellow, uh, his soldiers, his subordinates uh, during his time in the army. And so I just kind of wanted to note that since we are talking about the good, the bad, and the ugly of the general officer corps, I would be remiss if I did not cover the very bad and very ugly side of Braxton Bragg, which was the fact that he was a slave owner, a particularly cruel one at that. And, uh, again, it gives you a glimpse into the kind of man that he was and the kind of man he's going to be during the Civil War. Um, But that's it. That's all uh, I have for today. When we pick it up in the next episode, which I hope to have out next week, uh, we're going to be covering the actual generalship of Braxton Bragg, his time in the Civil War. I'm going to cover a little bit of the stuff leading up to the Civil War and then going, you know, his whole career uh, in the Confederate Army. And then I'll close it up with his uh, after the war and tell you what he did at the end of his life. Um, but again, thank you for listening to this episode. Uh, if you haven't already, go ahead and give some of the other episodes a listen. And uh, consider joining the Patreon and follow the Instagram page if you have not already. I try to post updates there every now and again. Um If anything comes out, it all gets posted there. And yeah, thanks you guys for uh, supporting the show. And I'll see you next time.